0: All right. Hey guys, good to see you. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for being here. Um, I feel like Denver is one of those places where there's always like a good reason not to be in church and you guys are here. Even, um, you know, it's a joy to see newly married couples like the Kalers celebrating their first Valentine's Day by greeting outside in another windy uh, Denver afternoon. Uh, But even like, I know some of you are single and I don't know, it's I don't know, I, I feel like you could have found some sort of excuse to work Valentine's Day into not being here as well. It's like, I'm just going to sit at home and watch Netflix, and I get that. Like You could have done that as well, uh, but you're here, and we really, really do appreciate it. So happy Valentine's Day, and uh, really excited to kick off the second half of Mark with you. Um, I know probably a lot of you, if you're new here, I'm like a huge sports fan, so you probably think that like, I'm going to figure out some sort of way to tie in uh, our Super Bowl champion. We are champions. Congratulations, everybody. We are champions. Like working that way into, uh, working that into uh, the gospel according to Mark. I'm not going to do that. I actually came across something far more epic uh, this week about a story about a sea turtle and a hippo. The hippo was named Owen. Um, the sea turtle was named Mazee. And uh, the way this came up is that we're playing at church. We're playing at church. <clears throat> down in Congress Park. It's kind of where the Trader Joe's is down there. And our church planting resident, Corbin, uh, if you know Corbin, he's kind of excitable and gets excited about things. And so he's like telling me about how he was at a Barnes & Noble recently and is reading this book about this sea turtle and about this hippopotamus, and he just starts like weeping in Barnes and Noble reading this thing. So I'm like, come on, man, like, what is it? So he kind of elaborates on, it. if you remember about a decade ago in Central Asia, there was a tsunami that hit Central Asia, and it, uh, and it orphaned this hippopotamus named Owen, but this sea turtle named Mzee adopts this hippopotamus into his family, which I'm like, well, that's really sweet, but like crying, really crying. So like, so, like seven or eight hours goes by, uh, I go home, you know, it's, it's getting later, so like we put Hannah down and Megan's doing something, And you kind of know what happens, like you're kind of fooling around on your phone and you're like, hey, I wonder if I should like Wikipedia this thing or something like that. So I look it up and like an hour later, I've Wikipediaed it. I've watched a documentary. It's getting dusty in my bedroom as I watch this like freaking sea turtle adopt this hippo into its family and like show how to scavenge for food. And this hippopotamus like protect this sea turtle with its own very life from from predators. And uh, you're probably like, why the heck are you starting with that? Well, I feel like that's the best overview I can give you for what the second half of the gospel according to Mark is going to be like. Okay, so you ready for this? Super, super excited for this. Uh, more, really the second half of the gospel according to Mark is kind of about the most unlikely relationship that exists in all of nature and it's universally experienced and felt. No, not a sea turtle hippopotamus, but here's what we actually do experience is the tension between tragedy and triumph. It's amazing for all of us how within kind of, no matter how talented we are, no matter how gifted we are, no matter what our experiences are, no matter what our backgrounds are, within a 15 minute uh stretch, yeah, that's the word I was looking for, within a 15-minute stretch of any particular day, it's amazing the way you can experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and for a lot of us, we don't really know what to do with that, and and the really incredible news is this book is going to show Jesus not really just give clarity to uh, that that tension that we feel between tragedy and triumph, but he's going to fully embrace it, take it on himself, and actually give us victory over it as well. This is really, really good news. Like we said, and we talk about this a lot, we love being in the city. A city tends to kind of draw almost two extremes of culture on one hand a city attracts really really talented gifted people one of the reasons that a lot of you in this room actually live here is because you chose to live here you're very good at what you do you make good money you're pretty influential and that's awesome but it's easy if that's you to not have a lot of categories for like how do I handle tragedy because your entire life you've been gifted enough talented enough educated enough wealthy enough to sort of throw gifts talents intellect money at a problem and it goes away and then it's like all of a sudden you get sick or somebody close to you gets sick and not just like puking for 24 hours sick, but like really sick. And it's like, what, 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 do, I, what do I do with this? And, and a lot of you, even over the last year or so, have been crushed by the weight of problems that you no longer have the ability to fix. I would say the other group of people that cities tend to attract is really broken people. Like cities tend to also be magnets for real brokenness. And and a lot of you have experienced stories of tremendous tragedy. And you've kind of experienced that again and again. You've sort of thrown your best efforts in terms of like making that tragedy go away. And it hasn't. And it's easy for you to sort of slip into the thinking to subconsciously or even like not subconsciously, whatever the opposite of that word is, like for you to believe like, I don't know how this is gonna go for me. I at least believe that it's gonna be like this for the rest of my life. You almost have no category of hope. You almost have no category for like, it could be any different for me. And so what we need is the very thing that Jesus is going to offer in the second half of this book. We we kind of establish who Jesus is. We'll get to that here in a second. But he's not just going to show us who he is, but where he's headed. And where he's headed is to take on himself the greatest tragedy and triumph the world has ever seen so that we can take on that as well. So what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to start chapter nine, and we're going to talk about uh, getting a glimpse of Jesus's triumph. The, the way that nine uh, chapter nine opens up is it kind of gives us a little glimpse of triumph and then tragedy. I was planning originally to do both, and then I got into this and like the first few verses were so sort of powerful and overwhelming. I felt like if we we're going to do it well, uh, we needed to camp out here. I figured for Valentine's Day, you didn't want like a three hour sermon. Um, I know that sounds really romantic, but I limited myself. And so that's all we're going to talk about. We're going to see a, a glimpse into Jesus' triumph. And as we do that, we're going to ask three big questions. It'll be super simple. Uh, all we're going to ask is kind of what, what is going on here in this scene? What's going on here in this scene? Second, why does it matter? And then third, like, how do we actually live it out this week? Super simple. What's going on? Uh, Why does it matter? How do we live this out? Okay, let's look at verse two. Look with me at verse two of chapter nine. If you have a Bible in front of you, it'll be uh, helpful. Uh, But if not, we'll have it on the screen as well. Uh, Mark starts by writing this. And after six days, uh, this is six days after Jesus asked Peter uh, the most important question that anybody in all of all of our lives will ever be asked like jesus asked the question who do you say that i and it's, it's the almost cl- uh, final curtain on part one of the book that's all about Jesus' identity. Who do you say that Jesus is? And, and the first eight chapters of Mark, they're almost like a scrapbook uh, that has like series, uh, a series of images that gives you glimpses into who Jesus is. Like, oh, he's the one who's victorious over disease, he's victorious over death, he's victorious over demons, he's the Messiah, he's the promised one who's come, he's God, he's meant to be believed, he's meant to be followed. And, and now Mark's like, okay, now that we've established this is who Jesus is, like, what is it that he has come to do? do. Uh, Mark's telling us this happened six days after, which is also significant because notice that Mark is increasing his specificity to increase our confidence in the historical reliability. Say it again. Mark is increasing his specificity as he's going to talk about something that's kind of crazy. It's hard for us to believe a little bit. He's increasing his specificity in order to increase our confidence in the historical reliability. As he talks about this miraculous thing that happens, he's not like, uh, it happens somewhere with these people like a year ago, I think. You can't really ask anybody about it. He's like, no, it it happened here. It happened six days after this. Here were the guys that were there. Here's where it went down. You can ask them if you don't believe me. So uh, I love the way that Mark writes this book. Okay, that's just the first four words. Okay, Jesus, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. If you remember, Jesus uh, made 12 disciples originally, and he had kind of like an inner circle amongst those 12, Peter, James, and John, and he's kind of giving them access to this unique experience and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, the high mountain that most scholars believe that they're going up is called Mount Hermon. We actually have a a map. Can we bring the global map of where all this is going down? Okay, so this is the world. You're welcome. Um, All of this is going down in the Middle East, right in this area. My hand is shaking, but right around there. Okay, let's zoom in uh, a little bit. And most of Jesus' ministry is taking place around the Sea of Galilee, but they've made their way north up there to Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon was around 10,000 feet above sea level, which I know all of you in Colorado are like, well, that's no big deal. But you have to understand, like in that part of the world, like 10,000 feet above sea level is really big. Actually, I was looking this up and you can actually go skiing there. So if anybody wants to go skiing in the Middle East, you can actually go to Mount Hermon and you can go skiing. Now, well, here's what I really love about all of this kind of going down. Um, I'll, I'll kind of be down on the front end. I'm a little bit biased about mountains. Like we exist in the Mile High City. I pastor a church called The Summit. We're planting a church Called the Heights, so like I'm a little bit I'm a little bit biased around here, but it's really interesting because I think a lot of times people associate Denver and mountains as the place that people go to escape the serious things of the world, right? Like a lot of you might have even moved here because you were like, well, there's mountains, like there was almost no like I I just feel like I meet people fairly regularly who moved here for no other reason other than like, man, I want to like ski my brains out. And it's really interesting because culturally the stereotype is that people get around the mountains in order to escape God. But in the Bible, the mountains were actually the place where God revealed who he was to his people. Which is why a lot of you in this room moved here to ski your brains out and God found you here. Isn't that like the craziest thing? Like you thought you were almost running away from God and you were actually running right towards him surprise, like that's how much he loves you. Like it's just, it's just amazing. I love, I love that over and over again in the scriptures. People go up to the mountains and God reveals who he is to his people. And that's exactly what you're going to see here in this scene as well. So he goes up there, Peter, James, John, Jesus, and it says he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now that word transfigured, we don't use that very much. Uh, In Greek, it's the word metamorpho, which I'm not just trying to like say that to To be impressive, I'm trying to help you kind of see the word that's underneath that. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. Uh, I'm not trying to say this is like a perfect theological analogy, but it's like when a caterpillar maintains its same essence, but blossoms into a butterfly and gives a glimpse into its beauty. In the same way, Jesus, in a moment, just sort of gives a quick glimpse to his disciples. Like, this is who I really am. This is the glory I possess. This is the grandeur I possess. This is the beauty I possess as God look at verse four, it says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses were two of the most well-known Old Testament prophets. They both themselves had significant experiences with God at the top of high mountains. And We'll kind of talk about why they're there uh, here when it comes back, the text comes back to it here in a second. Now, um, I love verse five and verse six. If you're like struggling to kind of wrap your mind around what's going on here and like feel like, what in the world? How do I relate to this? Like verse five and six is probably my favorite two verses of this entire scene because of sort of the, the humanity and the hilarity that breaks into the scene. Verse five says this, um, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, it's interesting, theologians and commentators all over are trying to like wrap their minds around, like, why in the world would, would, would Peter say that? And they try to do all sorts of like Old Testament theological analysis of, like, why exactly did this come from? But you have to remember, Mark was written because he was the personal scribe of Peter. So, so Peter kind of would talk about, here's what happened, and here's the things I experienced with Jesus. Mark would write those things down. So the thing that we are kind of had access to in Mark is actually the personal, like, opinion, the the eyewitness account of Peter, and we don't have to wonder why Peter said this. He actually tells us this in verse 6. He says this because he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this where you just sort of say something stupid because you're just overwhelmed. Let me just give you an example from my own life because those always tend to land the best. So um, like three months ago, I'm at Colorado Mills Mall, and I'm not sure why this has happened at malls, but like it seems like they've become almost exclusively kiosks with like bounty hunters trying to hunt you down to get you to buy their product. I don't even like going because it like makes me feel awkward and uncomfortable because I'm walking through and then somebody sees me and they want me to buy like their hand lotion and I'm like, they just make a beeline for me and then I feel bad. And so um, about three months ago, this really happened. My wife is there as an eyewitness and, um, and, and I'm walking and this guy makes a beeline for me and he asked me, do I like fine men's jewelry? Um, and just to sort of give you a visual of what it is he was selling. I brought a picture kind of like what he was selling. So like things that look like this, okay? Um, he has like case upon case of rings that look like this. So he says, do you appreciate fine men's jewelry? You know what I said in response? I love fine men's jewelry. Uh, that's just, and, and it just came out. It's like, no, 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 no. Like come back, come back. Like the words just came out. And then all of a sudden I'm spending 15 minutes looking at cases of rings that look like this as my wife looks at me from like, you know, a few yards away, just like, laughing like you're an idiot like absolutely i know i am i am an idiot. i don't appreciate Feynman's jewelry like this this ring i'm wearing is rubber it is a ten dollar ring it is literally the, the cheapest ring i could find i could never sport or wear or anything like that uh and so we do that right we just get overwhelmed we get intimidated there's moments where it's just like uh, yeah i just said it because i was i was scared that's what peter peter's saying in this moment he had a really good reason i mean he got a glimpse of the glory of god like it's a much better excuse than me like i didn't want to disappoint the stranger at colorado mills like but this this guy uh, yeah so peter's just like, he just says it, okay? And look at this. It's like, in the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all of them trying to wrap their minds around this, uh, God the Father speaks and actually brings clarity to, like, all of what's going on here in this scene. And look at this in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice, the voice of God the Father, came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, really, really significant point is being made here in verses 7 through verse 8. And God, in a lot of ways, isn't just sort of telling us, but he's showing us. Because when Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain, and he doesn't just simply reflect the glory of God, but he actually in himself produces the glory of God. When Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain, and he's with Elijah and Moses, and then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses disappear, and Jesus is the one who remains. When Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain, and unlike you see in the Old Testament, God's like, okay, here's some stone tablets, write this down, go tell people what I say. He instead tells everybody, what he says is what I say. What he's declaring in that moment is that Jesus Christ is no mere good religious teacher, he's no mere prophet, but he is God himself, and he produces and displays the grandeur and the glory of God himself. And that's what's happening in this scene, is God is sort of like, before I kind of tell you exactly where it is that Jesus is heading, what he's going to do, it's almost like one great uh, glimpse, again, into who Jesus is and his identity, and the glory that he produces because of who he is. Now, um, the question, of course, is like, why the heck does that matter, right? Like, why is that something more than just sort of a neat Theological observation, how does this matter for us and I really was wrestling through that this past week and um, here 's kind of like what I think the point is that it 's after and then we 'll try to unpack this so so the, why I think this matters so much is it 's revealing that Jesus Christ is the one through his work and through his identity he satisfies the inescapable and the universal human longing for glory. Jesus is being revealed in this moment as the one who satisfies the universal, inescapable human longing for glory, which again, I'm not expecting most of you to be like, oh, okay, like we're done here, right? Um, but that's kind of where it is that we're headed. And, and for me to kind of like unpack this, I'm going to lean heavily on a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant 15-ish page essay. I think it was actually originally a sermon that he delivered called The Weight of Glory, where he, he dives into this, like how we as human beings have this inescapable, universal longing for glory. And, and and here's what he writes. Let me just kind of read this and we'll unpack it as we go. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, this is sort of Lewis's artistic way of talking about how we long to be part of something bigger and grander than ourselves. He says, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave if we settle the matter. He's like, we feel this longing and we're trying to name it and he says it's almost like we, we kind of settle, call it a, lo- a longing for beauty. he says, but the books or music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, but it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing, themsel- the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. But listen to those. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Now what Lewis is saying here is that we have this inescapable longing for glory and and we come face to face with certain things that almost promise us glory and at first they sort of temporarily satisfy that longing, but then it's almost like a vapor. It's like, a, it's like smoke almost. It's like, it's like we kind of see it, and then we try to grab a hold of it, and then it's just gone. It just, it just doesn't satisfy that craving in the way that we desire. Let, let's even try to like, apply this to ourselves today. I, I was thinking a lot about this. Um, how do we do this in Colorado in particular? And I think in Colorado in particular, like, we really do this through experiences. Even the way we describe experiences that we enjoy, a lot of times are almost in messianic highly spiritual term. It was epic. It was awe inspiring. Like I was just thinking about this past week, um, the Super Bowl parade. Like, did anybody go to the Super Bowl parade? Okay, so you were like part of the million, right? And so like it was awesome. Like, okay, this is one of the reasons that we moved here to a city, the football team we thought would be pretty good and went out. I'm just kidding. Like we wouldn't be that that unspiritual about it. But it's like, man, this is great. Like we can walk from our house to this parade, and it was unbelievable. I mean, it was epic. Like, I've used that word to describe it uh, probably a thousand times since Tuesday when it all went down. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was just so bizarre walking down 17th Street and just in either direction seeing people, and a million people. Like, our state has five million people, and a million of them were in downtown at the exact same time, and only one person got arrested. Isn't that crazy? Like, what a joy. Like, the Broncos can produce so much joy in our city. It's crazy to me, and and it it was amazing. Like, I, I was... I don't know if you you get like this in crowd environments, but you know, um, a lot of times in crowd environments it gets really loud, so people sort of compete to like speak over one another until everybody's just screaming as loud as they can possibly scream. So you're hearing everybody's conversation as well. And I hear this guy about three people over from me scream to his friend as all this is going down. As we're waiting for the Broncos team to come down 17th Street with the trophy, he literally screams, "This is it! It doesn't get any better than this." Which I was like, man, if I'm just honest, like. I kind of thought that, too. <laughs> like, like, I'm judging you. Like, man, this is sweet. Like, I'm so glad that our team won. Like, this is, this is phenomenal. And, and you feel that. And then, man, it's like, it's this unbelievable experience. But then there's these haunting realizations of, like, is this really it? And you're, you're watching this parade, and you're, like, anticipating Peyton Manning, like, locking eyes with you when he goes by and, like, giving you this big thumbs up or something like that. <laughs> And then, you know what Peyton Manning did when he went right by us? You can ask anybody who was with our crew. Like, he was on his phone the entire time. I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if he just couldn't figure out how it works or, like, what it was. But it was just like, I just, he was just like this the entire time. It was just, man. You think, like, this is it. And then all of a sudden, like, you go back, you look at all the pictures you took, and it's just pictures of, like, a forest of selfie sticks being held up in order to get pictures. And it's just like, I have no good pictures, even though I took 17,000, I thought, epic pictures. It's like, man, you, you have this experience, and, and you think to yourself, like, this is it. And then all of a sudden, there's this haunting realization of, like, these men are never going to reciprocate my affection for them, which is okay. Like, I'm not expecting them to th- be throwing, like, $20 bills out. Like, I, I mean, they're finite human beings. Like, they're, they're not meant to reciprocate. There's a million of us. Like, they can't reciprocate that affection back, but it's just like, this is it. This, this is it. And you just kind of get this taste of, like, the largest gathering in the history of Colorado. And you're like, man, I hope there's something more than this. I tell you, we feel this with experiences. I, I feel like almost everything that we get ourselves close to, we, we sort of attach these messianic, salvific expectations to. And then, like, we, we finally have them in our grasp, and like a vapor, they disappear. I, mean, I was thinking about this not just with experiences, but if you're anything like me, a lot of times it's with, like, the things that we buy It's crazy for me, like the anticipation as you buy something, you know, it's like you scour the internet, you find the best deal, you buy this thing that you think is going to satisfy this need, and you're like, this is going to change everything. This P90X workouts, DVD set is finally going to make me feel attractive, and it's finally going to make me feel fit and healthy, and all my problems are going to go away, and you are religiously, man, I mean, like, more than reading your Bible, you are religiously checking FedEx.com to see when that thing is going to be in your mailbox. Where is it? How is it in Maryland, and then Illinois, and then back in New Jersey? Like, what in the world is going on in this moment? This thing is going to come, and it is going to save me, and then all of a sudden, after two days. you're like, this sucks, right? Like, I don't want to do this in my basement anymore. And then it's like I'm on Craigslist a week later, and you take a 50% hit on this thing that was going to save you. And I think about, um, I don't know, like the other, just... It's like that jacket is going to finally make me feel attractive. And then all of a sudden you just have a, a closet full of jackets. That, that organizer, right? Like some of you, like I know we don't have a ton of moms here, but i love to speak to you moms as well. It's like, I feel like the mommy blogs in particular, like portray these particular products. as like, this is the thing that is going to help your life go from being crazy and chaotic to under control. Man, just this system... Just this organizer, this planner, you can even customize it for yourself, for your unique problems, and you're thinking to yourself, like, this is it, like, perfectly obedient children, never tired, perfect nap times, and then it arrives, and you're just like, man, it's a notebook. You know, that's what it is. It's a notebook, and I have, like, stacks of 50 of them in the closet spilling out. And over and over and over again, experiences, things that we buy, relationships. I mean, gosh, it's like it's amazing the way we attach messy ending expectations to like this is the guy who's not gonna make me feel lonely anymore, this is the girl who's gonna make me feel fulfilled, and then you get like seven months into that relationship and you're like man, the person who's going to save me is the same person I'm fighting about because they can't give me undivided attention in the midst of them like fooling around on their phone all the time. Like That's the person who's going to save me. And over and over and over again, we had this, like Lewis is right, we had this haunting suspicion that these things that sort of promise our salvation are actually false saviors and they break our hearts. We're only halfway through Lewis's quote, so just stick with me, okay? (laughs) Um, And Lewis comes back to this, and here's the point that he makes. Lewis makes the point to say that finite things were never meant to fill the infinite void that exists within each each and every one of us. The the infinite void that exists within your heart can only be filled by the one who has revealed himself to be infinite because he is God. And here's what Lewis says. I'm just going to read this because I feel like almost like throwing commentaries to do disservice to one of the most beautiful paragraphs in the history of the English language. He says this, But to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will open at last. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us the whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Come on, C.S. Lewis. Man, it's like, gosh. Like the point that this passage is making, the point that Lewis is after, the point that I'm after, is that just as you know that water is the only thing that will satisfy your thirst, just as you know that food is the only thing that will satisfy your hunger, what I pray for you to know is that Jesus Christ alone possesses the glory that will satisfy your craving and longing for glory. It's only found in him. And anyone or anything less than him, anything that is finite, will break your heart in the midst of you putting those messy expectations onto it. That's why it matters. Now, I still feel then like, well, how does this like, Okay, how do you live differently tomorrow, right? You can't go into your office and be like, hey, let me just read several pages of C.S. Lewis to you. Your, Your coworkers aren't like, oh, thank you. They're like... Don't do that. So um, how, do we, how do we kind of live differently this week in light of Jesus revealing that he's the one who possesses the glory of God at the transfiguration? And really, I just want to give you three simple implications, uh, and then we're going to just pray and ask God that he would produce this in our lives. Now, uh, the first implication that we see would just be rest. Uh, that, that seeing that Jesus is the one who possesses the glory that we're searching for and longing after, that that gives us the ability to rest. And, and when I think about rest, I mean in particular. I'm not just talking like taking days off. What I mean is that I feel like Colorado is a place where people people kill themselves in pursuit of sort of tasting and experiencing that glory. It's just amazing to me the way that people will move out here for experiences in a lifestyle. And they sort of get close to it. And I mean, they'll, they'll push, people push themselves to the extreme to the point that it's like, I mean, they really will literally risk their own lives just to get an experience, a taste of an experience that's so epic. And they feel like they're really living. They feel like they're really experiencing this particular thing. And I think in particular, for those of you who have like gotten to the cusp of this, I heard somebody say one time that like the scariest moment in our lives is when we actually get the thing that we've always longed for. And then we find that it doesn't provide the thing that we believe that it would provide. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced what it's like to, I mean, it might not be an experience, even though I feel like in Colorado, I look at your Instagram feeds and it's like, yeah, you have like the most unbelievable experiences ever. But it might be you finally worked the job that you believe would always satisfy. It might be that you started being able to date the person you felt like Finally, I'm going to be able to date that person, and it's going to be make my wildest dreams come true. Finally, I'm going to marry that person. Finally, I'm into the life stage of becoming a parent, and then, then I'll truly be happy. And then you experience that, and you finally have the very thing that you clamored for, and it doesn't provide that that glory that you crave. It's burdensome. It's expensive. It's like really expensive. It's draining. <laughs> And to you, like my friend who's still on that quest and is trying to figure out like, what is it that really is meant to satisfy this craving? Like you can rest because your search is over. Like that's what Jesus is providing. He's just kind of like, it's like giant neon flashing lights. Like the thing that you've been looking for is not a thing, it's a person and it's me. And it doesn't mean those things are bad. It doesn't mean you have, like, we're not anti mountains. We're just saying that finite things like that are not meant to have ultimate expectations placed upon them. Because in that moment, they break the heart of the worshiper. And many of you experience heartbreak again and again and again, being let down by experiences, being let down by purchases, being let down by relationships. And you can rest, and you can stop the search. And you can, I mean, the craziest thing is you can like believe right here in this moment, right now. And the biggest need that you have, you can believe that Jesus has met because he actually has. Isn't that the craziest thing? Like right now in this moment, anybody in this room could ser- stop the greatest quest of their lives and have it be satisfied. And some of you will keep searching. Oh, man, okay. So anyways, uh, rest. Second, through this, Jesus really gives liberation as well really gives liberation as well. And when I think about liberation, I mean liberation from the expectation that these things that are less than God are going to provide the joys of God. It's liberation from placing messianic expectations on people who will be false messiahs. And I feel like, And really the root or the foundation of you being a good friend, of you being a good employee, of you being a good employer, of you being a good significant other, of you being a good spouse, of you being a good parent, of you being a good anything, is to not place messianic expectations upon those relationships. And it's so easy to. It's so easy. Like, again, I know the crowd in the evening is a little bit, younger in terms of life stage and so a lot of you like aren't married but it's crazy to me the degree to which I'll do premarital counseling and I almost just like my biggest job is to help you understand that this guy that you're marrying isn't going to save you and nobody would put it that way but they would just say like yeah like I have these problems and he meets all the problems and and then all of a sudden you get married for six months and you're like shoot you got problems too like you were thinking I was going to fix your problems and they just compound and they get worse, <laughs> worse, worse and You know, I don't think anybody has a child and is like, behold, the Messiah has been born. Like, nobody, I don't think any of you said that. But there's this feeling of like, yeah, I want to feel like I have purpose in the world. I want to feel like I have meaning. I want to feel like I'm making a difference. You even see in like rom-coms, this is what's portrayed as the reason for having children. It's like we think about our jobs, like this is the thing that's going to fulfill me. We think about the people that work for us. These are the people that are going to help me realize my dreams. And it's amazing to me the degree to which we can crush people in the midst of those messianic expectations. If you believe your marriage is going to save you and fix your deepest problems, you will crucify your spouse. If you believe that that friend is sort of like, this is the person I need if I'm really going to be happy, you're going to crucify that friend and they're going to deeply, deeply disappoint you and you guys are going to have a terrible, terrible falling out. If you believe that your child, again, I know I'm only speaking to a few of you, but if you believe your child, I don't know, here, I just want to came out of this for a second because I think a lot of times people are like, of all of these things, I think the child thing is the one thing where people are like, that's never going to be me, right? I ain't never going to be the crazy parent, like I'm looking at the crazy dance mom, that ain't even ever going to be me. I'm thinking that like I have a daughter, she already likes to dance. So I ain't going to be the crazy dance dad. That ain't going to be me. I'm never going to be the, ch- the, the parent of the 12 year old who like strikes out in little league and screams and melts down in front of everybody because like I thought that my son just lost game seven of the world series when really it was like a local little league game and nobody cares whatsoever. I'll, but it's, it's amazing, even when these kids are like one, two, three years old. For, for those of you who have kids, that's about the age of the kids that a lot of you have. It's easy even then to let that child's performance have a direct correlation between your joy and your happiness and your feelings of satisfaction where it's just like, man, if this child doesn't poop, everything is ruined. And I know a lot of you don't have kids, so you're like, what the heck is he talking about? But for like the five of you do, you're like, man, I'm right there with you. Like, I know exactly what that's like. It's easy to feel like, man, this child has had a really bad day, so I have a really bad day. Like, Megan and I, we have this conversation all the time. Like, I think about this morning. Like, our daughter, she's two, and she just woke up angry this morning. She does not have any reason to wake up angry. She just woke up angry. She's mad at me. She's mad at Megan. She's mad at the dogs. It's just the way she was. She normally has a very sweet predisposition, but this morning she just wakes up, and she's like, I am going to make some heads roll. It's totally fine. Man, and it's like, May and I, were getting frustrated and we're getting overwhelmed. Any of you who are parents know exactly what that's like to just be like, what in the world is going on? And it seems like it's like a black cloud. It's like this thing that directly impacts the entirety of the mood in our home. And so we just look at each other and it's like, man, she's just two years old. She's like a sinful little two-year-old. Like we love her. She's great, but she's a sinful little two-year-old who needs redemption and she's not our Messiah. And her, her behavior, her happiness, her obedience is not gonna determine whether we're happy. She's not our Messiah. She's just a sweet little girl. and We love her very, very much. you going to save us. And it liberates you. It, it liberates you because you need that if you're going to be healthy in your relationships. And it doesn't just liberate you from that sort of unrealistic expectation, but it liberates you to go into relationships to, rather than be a taker, you can actually be a giver. You can say, okay, Jesus is the one who saved me and it's his grace that has transformed me and I come into relationships not looking to be fulfilled primarily, but actually to give and to serve in the way that Jesus first gave to me instead. And that's what breathes life into relationships. Okay, third and finally, it gives victory. It gives victory as well. I think in particular, victory through wonder. I think a lot of times, I don't know, I interact with a lot of you guys, a lot of you want to change, a lot of you want... Um, you look at certain aspects of your life, and it's like, I don't want to demonstrate this pattern of behavior anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. And I don't know what it is. It's kind of because culture, you know, like Dr. Phil talks this way, as well as a lot of times even religious circles will look at the behaviors that you perform, and they're like, stop it. And you're like, well, why should I stop it? Because only stupid people do this, okay? Like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Bad, 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 bad. And then all of a sudden, like eight days later, you're doing the very thing that you swore you were never going to do again because guilt is a really, really terrible and horrible motivator. Like if you really want to be changed, if you really want to be transformed, if you really want to see victory in the areas of your life where you want like victory over sin, victory over self-destructive behaviors that hurt you and the people around you, like what you need is not sort of guilt but instead a vision of the greatness and the grandeur of the God who saved you and his ability to change you and to transform you. Just a glimpse to be able to not just hear, but to see this is who he is. And this is the grace that I've received. And this is the posture from which I fight these areas of my life that I'm trying to put to death. It's not just sort of like, wow, I'm gonna try really, really hard to feel really, really bad if you want to like read more about this, a guy named Thomas Chalmers, he wrote a book called, or he wrote an essay called the, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it's really, really helpful for this. I just want to give a quote. But if you want to read more about this, he'd be a really great guy. Um, I don't have a slide for this, but just listen to this. He says, the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So like your brokenness can't be redeemed by you feeling like really, really bad about the things that you do. It's just like, well, that's stupid. Don't do that. But here's what he says. He says... But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more lovely than itself. He's saying in this moment, like if you really want victory over the areas of life that are deeply broken and destructive, like you're, what you need is kind of what's being provided in this very scene, like a, a vision, an opportunity to like taste and to see the greatness and the glory of who God is, and to let that power spill into your life, in this particular area of your life where you're fighting from. And I think about this in particular, it's like one more kind of like internet black hole I dove into this past week. Um, I don't know how I find these things, but uh, speaking of getting dusty in my bedroom, um, you know, I'm, I come across a story of this 12-year-old girl in India who had never been able to see her entire life. Um, it was kind of like, I, I'm not sure exactly what the medical issue was, but um, it, all it required was like this really simple $300 surgery. Um, But the region of the world that she lived in, it was really hard for anybody to get to her. And and finally, at age 12, somebody gets to her and performs the surgery. And so there's this video on YouTube of you getting to see her see for the first time in her life. And it's beautiful because the very first thing that she sees in her entire life is actually her mother. And it's really interesting, right? Because like her whole life, she'd probably been told what her mother looked like. Her entire life, she had kind of gotten descriptions and this is what she looks like and her face looks like this. But how do you kind of have categories before you're able to see yourself? And then you see her face when she sees for the first time. And it's like, it's not just like she received new information or knowledge, but it's like something changed in the very constitution of her being. It's like, that's what we're after. It's like, we're we're after getting a vision of the glory of God to such a degree that it transforms and changes and just, God, it like, it changes the, the little nooks and crannies of our lives that we so desperately need victory and to stop living in the particular ways that we're living. If you feel sort of helplessness with that or if you're a critical thinker and you're like, what in the world, like, Like, what do we do? You know, like, I would lovingly tell you that this is sort of where our abilities cease, but that's where God's work is always the greatest, is when we sort of recognize our limitations. And what we conclude with is not like, well, here's uh, three ways to see the glory of God. Like, that's not the way, that would be stupid for me to do. But instead, like, we, we ask ourselves, like, have the scriptures really acknowledged this tension? Have they, have they told us, like, how we can do this? And, and it's really interesting. The Apostle Paul, he, he does this. And so I just want to close with this, like, us reading the scripture and us, like, really praying that God would do this for us. I, I believe that's when God moves the most, is when we come to a place where it's like, this is what I need. We come to a place where it's like, I can't do the very thing that I need so much. But God is eager and willing and able to do the very thing that we so desperately need, but are able to do through our own strength and power. And here's what Paul writes. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness. He's rooting our confidence that we serve the creator of this universe who created everything out of nothing by the very power of his word. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying is our confidence is ask God, like we can't do that. I can't propel my heart to believe this. But there is a God who spoke and made everything, and consequently, He can speak into my heart as well, and to make the truth of who Jesus is, not just mere information, but to transform me. And for me to be able to, to taste and to see just a glimpse of the glory of God as Jesus gives to Peter, James, and John at the top of this mountain. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and um, really thankful uh, for just the scene that in some ways like seems really otherworldly and irrelevant and then we like press into it and we see that it's meant to change the way that we go home and live tonight. When people disappoint us, when experiences disappoint us, when our jobs disappoint us, This gives us the answer for the very thing that we long for. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. He's not merely a prophet. He is not merely a good religious teacher, but he is the one who produces the glory of God because he is God. And he is the one who satisfies our longing for this glory. I pray that we would know that our search is over. I pray that as we desire to really believe this, that we would ask, like, that we would humble ourselves and not churn over in our minds a bunch of like analytical, philosophical uh, uh, analysis of this, but instead that we would humbly cease action, confess inadequacy, and request that you would produce in our hearts what we do not have the ability to produce. Please do this. And we just ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.